It is a beautiful day to be alive, and I'm so glad we have this time together. I'm Sanaa Laybourne, she, her. I am a professor, scholar, connector, and avid reader. I've always loved learning about what's happening in our social world and sharing that knowledge, especially over a good cup of coffee. And so here we are. Each week on Let's Grab Coffee, I catch up with experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, you'll learn about their inspirations, motivations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. Go ahead and grab that cup of coffee and get ready for an engaging and insightful conversation. Ooh, I don't know about you, but there's nothing like the feeling of checking something off of your to-do list, getting one step closer to achieving a goal. You've probably experienced the satisfaction of a job well done, or maybe you quickly move on to the next big thing, not taking a moment to pause, celebrate, or enjoy. And who's to blame you? After all, the desire for success and achievement are part of our culture, a culture that tells us ambition is a virtue, to do more, to be the best, to work hard so we can play even harder. But what does all that ambition ultimately get us? Are we healthier, happier, more fulfilled? With burnout at an all-time high, according to a recent study by the Future Forum, is it time to rethink ambition and our definition of success? Rainsford Stoffer examines these questions and more in her latest book, All the Gold Stars, Reimagining Ambition in the Ways We Strive. Rainsford Stoffer, she, her, is a freelance writer, reporter, and Kentuckian. She's also the author of An Ordinary Age, which was named one of Esquire's best nonfiction books of 2021. Rainsford writes the Work in Progress column at Teen Vogue and wrote a column at Catapult, Gold Stars. Her work has appeared in Teen Vogue, Scalawag, Vox, Day Magazine, Elle, The New York Times, and other outlets. She was featured on PBS's Brief But Spectacular in 2023. Rainsford is passionate about student journalism and youth-led writing spaces and has helped pilot paid journalism opportunities for young people with 100 Days in Appalachia and the Kentucky Student Voice Team, where she's currently supporting youth-led writing on issues related to education justice throughout the state. She's also a mentor with the Zenith Cooperative. Rainsford is a 2022-2023 Rosalind Carter Fellow for Mental Health Journalism, focusing on youth mental health in the South. She joins us today. Hi, Rainsford. So glad to have you with us. Hi there. Thank you so much for this conversation. I'm so excited. Yes, I am absolutely excited to dive into this book and have this chat with you. Um, All the Gold Stars, Reimagining Ambition and the Ways We Strive. Let me tell you, I saw the title and I was like, okay, yes, I'm all in, you know, uh, no surprise. I live by, you know, the gold stars, all, you know, so such a big part of all of our childhood. And I was like, I'm all about reimagining ambition, trying to detach um, from all of this striving and all these external uh, definitions of success. But I have to be honest, I started reading the book and I felt myself feeling like so defensive, like, oh, this is it me. I'm not, you know, ambitious in this way. I'm not striving in this way. And I had to kind of have a moment with myself to be like, okay, where's all this resistance coming from? Uh, (laughs) I was like, maybe I need to put this on a list of things to talk with my therapist about. (laughs) I love that you said that because honestly, that's kind of how I felt when I was doing some of the writing and reporting for this book. I'd be in interviews listening to these experts talk about self-worth and well-being and burnout and all these intersections of structural crises and how we're trying to kind of out-ambition or out-strive our way through those. And I felt very called out. 
there were a couple moments where I paused and was like, oh no, I think they're talking about me and they don't even know it, which is wonderfully comforting because the good news is none of us are alone in feeling the things that we're feeling related to this. But it is a moment of pause where you're like, or at least I was like, I hadn't considered my ambition through this particular lens before. And it can feel a little bit disorienting or jarring to pause long enough to think, oh, wow, where is this feeling about this coming from? Where is this ambition coming from for me? Yes. You know, and I think part of it, and you talk about it in your book too, is the way we think about ambition, like the word itself. And, um, you know, for some folks, for women in particular, ambition is seen as a double-edged sword. We should have enough of it, but not too much. And ambition is almost like something you don't want to be in certain ways. Mm -hmm. So even as I was first encountering the book, I was thinking about, well, I'm not ambitious like that. Like, that's not how I would describe myself. But when I think about uh, objectively the actions I was taking, or I'll just say like the goals I was setting, right? I'm like, oh, no, girl, you are, you were and are very ambitious. It's really interesting. I think the reflex is to either claim it or downplay it a lot. And I think it's because to your point, there are so many societal, cultural norms around ambition. What an ambitious person is supposed to look like. How do they sound? What do they do? What kind of goals do they have? And I think an important thing to flag up front related to this is that there's really no version of what's considered ambitious, what's considered successful, who gets to have that quality, whose ambition is celebrated versus tolerated, whose ambition is encouraged versus discouraged, without naming that all of this intersects with gender, race, class, it intersects with ideas ideas of whiteness, of able-bodiedness, so many of these norms of ambition dating back to its very origins, even as a word, are predominantly white, cisgender, able-bodied, and male. And I think that we can definitely see how that plays out, not only in how we interact and interface with our own ambition, but also what ideals of ambition are upheld structurally? What's considered a good goal to strive for? What's considered a good kind of ambition and who gets to have it? And that was one of the most fascinating parts of researching this book for me. Mm -hmm. And I love that you include all of that history, but then also currently how it plays out, particularly in our workforce, which is one of the main ways where we really think about ambition. And the other piece that I really appreciate it is, although we think about ambition as our individual choices, they're not at all, right? So you kind of talked about it just now about how ambition is structurally embedded in our society. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the roots of how we currently think about ambition. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yeah. So again, this was one of the most fascinating parts of the book that I felt like it was really important to talk about because I think that we have these modern ideas of what ambition is, of what it means. And I was really curious is to go back and figure out kind of how we got to this place. And we know that just as often as ambition can be used as a way to express our agency, our passion, do things that are really profoundly meaningful to us, it also has this flip side where it can really double as an excuse to exploit people. I think of all the professions from writing to teaching to social work where people are told, but it's your passion. Why are you worried that you're being underpaid? If you really cared about the work, if you were really ambitious about it, the payment shouldn't matter. 
And that is a horrific workplace abuse. It's an awful position to put people in. So I was curious to even dial it back from that and try to better understand sort of where this came from. And so in the book, I looked at some research where researchers have traced the origins of ambition, the roots of the word, back to Roman politics and the idea of politicians going around and soliciting votes. Some researchers actually traced it back to versions of the Bible that connected ambition to sin. And then, of course, there were researchers who put all of that together and drew these through lines to ambition as we know it now to the impact of white supremacy, colonialism, and imperialism. So there is no version of modern ambition that doesn't have at least some groundwork, some foundation in all of these places. And then, of course, we've got capitalism and the entire concept that what we produce is what we're worth and all these systems that inform that the fact that our healthcare, our ability to access safe housing our ability to show up fully in the world is directly tethered to our income also reinforces these ideas of ambition. So even beyond the historical context, the kind of social and political context, I was really interested in using ambition kind of as a lens to look at all of these different ways we think about self-worth, that we think about work, that we think about what it means to strive and who gets to do that, who wants to do that. And I think it's a lot more complex than maybe just saying, oh, I'm ambitious or, oh, I'm not ambitious anymore, would best to believe. Mm-hmm, absolutely. I mean, there's so much in this wrapped up in this word ambition that if we don't take this moment to think about it or take this moment to read your book, we'll just continue to strive, right? And we, we're thinking, oh, everyone is striving. Everyone is working towards, you know, these goals of success and um, fulfillment without really questioning, okay, is this even even what I want? What would it mean if I wasn't ambitious in this particular way? Which again, as you mentioned, is very much often tied into the workplace because of how our society is structured. Uh, But we don't have the time to often think about or even consider, wait, is this even what I want? It's such a good point. And, you know, I think it relates to something that I thought the people that I got to speak to for this book did such a beautiful job illustrating because it's so frustrating the way ambition is argued in both directions, where as a society, we kind of shame people for being too ambitious, particularly if you are not amongst the groups that sort of solidify the norms of ambition. You're not supposed to want too much. You're certainly not supposed to claim too much. You're supposed to be the appropriate amount of grateful and subtle about your striving all the time. Then the script flips and we tell people they aren't ambitious enough, that if they were just working harder, if they just wanted more for themselves, they would be able to essentially out-ambition massive structural failings. So I think just the fact that people are shamed in both directions in terms of this makes it inherently more complicated. And then you add on top of that, that we have certain goals or certain social scripts of achievement and timelines of achievement as a society that we really like to uplift as the pinnacle of what a successful, meaningful life looks like. And because it is also wrapped up in this individualism, if we choose something else, if our life takes a different track, if we're ambitious in a different way, if these things don't fall in this pattern for us, we're told 
well, but if you'd really wanted it, you would have gotten it. You just should have worked harder. And that's everything from our conception of ambition to a lot of our policies that reinforce who has access to resources and who has access to choices. Mm -hmm. I think it's that idea of the timeline, which you talk about in the book and, you know, this idea that we should have it all figured out, you know, in our twenties or in our thirties, or at least, oh my gosh, by your (laughs) forties, like you're already falling behind in each decade. And it made me reflect on the fact that when I was younger, like in middle school, high school, I just knew by the time I was 27, that I was going to be in my career. I was going to own a home and I had to be married by that age. And I have no clue where 27, but came, but that was like, in my mind, like you are, you should have it all figured out like that. After that, you're done. (laughs) If you haven't achieved these things, then what is, what is your worth really? And it's so funny because for example, like the marriage part, I never even wanted to be married, but yet I thought that I had to be, I had to want those things. And so I think it speaks to your point of how culturally we learn that there are certain things we should want and we should be striving for on a certain timeline. And if we don't want those things or they don't happen in that timeline, in a certain sequence, then there's something wrong with us that we should feel some sort of shame about not wanting these very heterosexual heteronormative, right, ideas of success and life and fulfillment. I know you all can't see me, but I was literally throwing my hands up in the air as we talked about timelines, because yes, I think the sensation of being behind and the fear of being behind, I think it fuels capitalism and competition that sort of inherently pit us against each other, that in order to be doing well and feeling fulfilled in your own life, that's supposed to equal doing it faster and doing it better than someone else, which is so profoundly isolating. And I think the sensation of behindness also really ties into a certain kind of ambition that has been one of the most challenging things I personally have grappled with, including over the past couple of years, where over from the conception of this book and the initial idea to reporting it, my personal life just kind of fell into pieces around me. There was no sense of plan. There was no sense of, oh, this is going to turn out okay. Staying on track kind of went out the window because the track was not underneath me anymore. And so it was really interesting to be having these conversations with people where students were talking about this idea that you're supposed to have your entire life figured out by well, first it was 18 and now it's closer to 16. And really it's the earlier you can do it, the better it's going to be. And I think that one of the things that is so harmful about that as we age, as we get the gift of aging, those of us that do, is that it funnels us into this idea that if your goals shift at all, if all of a sudden you're like, I don't think I want this anymore. I think I might want something else or my life is not turning out how I thought it would, but I think that's okay. I think it could be a good thing. It applies this kind of shame that you did not stay on track because we value having it quote unquote figured out so early. It really leaves us little room to let our ambition grow and change. And it would only make sense that our ambition would change shape as we grow into new versions of ourselves, as we get to know those new versions. So I think about that a lot, the way that timelines can press what it means to be ambitious and and what we get to strive for and what we get to dream about as we move through our lives. 
I love that idea of dreaming and imagination, which you talk a lot about in your book and that, you know, it's okay that we change our minds. Like our ambitions will change. We will grow. We'll learn more things. We'll learn differently. And that will shape what we want to do, not to mention things that happen outside of our control that will also force us to rethink ourselves and our place in this world. Um, I like to say all the time that I'm the quit queen. I will quit something. Like I will pick things up. I will be all in. And then I'll decide, you know what? Actually, that's not for me. And I don't have a, a problem changing my mind. Although when I was younger, I was definitely of the belief that, you know, you make a commitment, you make the plan, you follow it through. It doesn't matter if, you know, it's not what you want anymore. It doesn't matter if it's harmful, right? Um, If you're working in a job and it's a toxic work environment, you still complete the job, right? You still do what you said you were going to do. But now I'm like, you know what? Nope, not going to do that. But for some people that could seem like a failure of ambition. Totally. And because everything, again, our work is so bound to the kind of resources we have, I think it can be very ambitious to quit things. I actually think that quitting in and of itself or removing yourself out of a situation, knowing enough about yourself to know what you need and go get it. I think all of those are incredibly ambitious things. I also think that because of the way labor is bound to safety and security in our society, it makes it feel sometimes really impossible for people to quit things. Not everyone is in that position. And I think that that's one of the things that I heard about so much in the book, where if people had more resources, if they had more autonomy in their terms of their time, in terms of having their basic needs met, if there was that foundation under them, for a lot of people, that would actually help them be more ambitious about what matters most. It wouldn't take ambition away. It would fuel it in really new and imaginative and much more sustainable ways. And I think it's such a good point that our ambition changes as we do. When I talk to people for the book, it was everything. It was quitting a job, switching a field. It was losing a loved one and grief. It was entering a new relationship. It was building new friendships. All of these things changed how they interacted with ambition. And and in a lot of ways, opened up new avenues for them to be ambitious about, which is, I think, the exciting piece of this. I think that there is certainly the kind of ambition that tells us there's only one kind of thing to want. There's only one kind of good life to live. But there's also this other side where it really can be more responsive to our communities, more sustainable, more imaginative, and giving people more resources helps encourage that. Mm -hmm. It's the resources piece that I love that you weave throughout the book to bring us back to that reminder that ambition, while we think of it as our individual striving, it's, again, still culturally constructed. It's related to the structures of our society that create, right, even our own expectations. So as you mentioned, even thinking through what ambition might look like detached from these ideas of capitalism really um, is also very ambitious in and of itself. Um, In the book, you talk about uh, community and really communal care and the ways that helps us rethink what ambition could look like or what ambition um, could be for. And I found that very hopeful, right? Um, It can seem overwhelming to think about, okay, how can, now that I know that these ambitions are really upholding the structures that 
hold us all back, what can I do? And it's hard to think about that on an individual level, right? There's not something that any of us individually could do, but together we could make some changes. Um, I'm wondering for you, as you reflect on the process of the book and the folks you talk to, what is it that you're hopeful about or you're excited about in terms of ambition and maybe changing some of the structures and conditions that we are currently in? I love this question so much because I think there's a little bit of a misconception and one that I certainly had when I started reporting this book, which is that I thought it was about getting rid of ambition. Like, who can we be without this? What happens if we aren't ambitious anymore? And that original idea was very bound up in the idea that I was losing my own ambition. And I thought of ambition at the time as the only good quality I had to offer, the only thing that was holding my life together. And so as I moved through reporting and as I was talking to people, I was surprised in a very wonderful, very encouraging way. It's not that people were saying, hey, I'm not going to be ambitious anymore. I don't care about things anymore. I don't want to invest my time and energy and my dreams and things anymore. It's that I'm doing it in a different way. So in the back half of the book, I got to speak to people who talked about being ambitious about friendships and how they were pouring the same sort of intention and care into their friendships and their neighborhoods and their communities as they did these external goals that they had at work or in school. I talked to people who were organizing for better care infrastructure, people who were engaged in mutual aid initiatives in their neighborhood. And I think that that gave me an entirely new lens through which to think about ambition, where instead of it being associated with this individual striving, what happens if we're ambitious about each other? What happens if our ambition is about imagining better for all of us? And I think that you see that in so many different movements right now. I think we see strikes and unionization efforts in workplaces. I think Mutual aid is an ongoing one, advocacy around things like paid leave and care infrastructure. These are inherently quite ambitious things that -hmm. people are pursuing on behalf of each other. And I think that's what makes them so significant and that's what makes them so lasting. And I should say that doesn't mean that we don't have individual dreams or things we want for our lives. It just means that these ambitions don't have to be so siloed. We can be ambitious for our goals, for our dreams, for how we want to show up in the world. And we can be ambitious about the part we play in a larger whole. To me, that was one of the most uplifting things I've ever gotten to report in any capacity, honestly. And to me, that is the more imaginative version of ambition that I am trying to strive for, that I really want to be ambitious about. Mm-hmm. I, that resonates so much with me because I find myself too making this shift to rethinking what ambition looks like and for it to be much more about relationships than it is about being ambitious about some individual pursuits. And, you know, part of that, I think, is a reflection of the pandemic and me having, you know, not being able to achieve in the ways that I had been achieving. Um, In fact, the pandemic happened and everybody is, you know, making bread and all this stuff. And I decided to start a podcast about goal setting because. (laughs) I was trying to find the ways that, you know, the world made sense to me, right? Um, Of course, very differently than maybe if I had started a podcast about goal setting pre-pandemic, but 
you know, so much of my life had been organized around striving for something that when those kind of regular ways of life shifted, I was like, okay, how can I make sense of very, you know, unusual times? And so it's just so ironic that that default is, okay, to still strive for something and still still tied to that, you know, individual achievement too. And I think this is such an interesting part of the conversation, because one of the questions I've gotten a lot is sort of this, there's one that people have asked where it's almost like a gotcha, where it's like, well, you wrote a whole book about getting rid of ambition, but don't you think writing a book is ambitious? And it's like, I like to think it's about a little bit more than that. I think it's a little bit more nuanced than that, hopefully. But I think that for a lot of us, I think that we want to achieve things in our lives. I think whether that looks like, you know, an academic achievement or a work achievement or something different altogether, I think most of us would say we would like to have a meaningful impact over the course of our lives, whether that's in how we show up with our neighbors, whether that's what we do with work. I don't think it has to be following a social script of achievement for us to want to feel like we've made a meaningful contribution, like our presence or our ideas are valued, like people care that we're here. I think that is a totally human impulse. And I think that all the time when I hear these comments about how, well, if people had resources, if we had a universal basic income, people wouldn't want to work anymore. It's like, are you sure they wouldn't want to work or would they just be able to live a more comfortable, more fulfilled life? And why would we not want that for each other? Why would we not want everyone to get to show up in the world and make their most meaningful contribution without having to worry about whether they're going to be able to pay their rent or whether they're going to be able to buy diapers for their child or pay off a student loan? I think that all of this is so wrapped up in each other. And I think that a lot of it stems from the idea that whatever we do, it always means more if we've done it alone. And I have found the opposite to be true, even in my professional life, even with my work. There have been moments where I have hit big benchmarks beyond my wildest dreams goals and kind of looked around and realized, oh, my gosh, this does not feel at all how I thought it would feel. I actually feel very lonely. I feel very untethered. What am I supposed to do now? And it was the absence of community. It was the absence of being part of something bigger than myself that I think led to that feeling. So it's a both and. And no one is saying, hey, don't have individual ambitions. Don't have an idea of how you'd like your life to look. I just think it's so much more meaningful, so much more celebratory when we can figure out ways to do it together. Absolutely. I love that expansion of thinking about ambition as the both and instead of the either or. Um, But here we can have both those individual goals or strivings as well as those connections to community and thinking about what does community care look like? What does a future look like where all of us are supported and have the ability to even think about, okay, what is something that I might want to do in my individual life that's maybe just for me? Um, And so I think that's really important. As I was reading reading the chapter about kind of reframing ambition and the different ways people are being ambitious, for example, about friendships. Um, I was like, oh, that reminds me, like I need to text one of my friends and be intentional about, right? Like 
getting together and continuing to foster that friendship and not just think friendships happen, but rather to say like, hey, like, let's do this thing that doesn't have to be some big production, but just let's spend time together because I want to be ambitious about the relationships that I have because as you know, we learn, I think our relationships are really all that we have, right? Or those end up being the most important things and the most fulfilling parts of our lives. Uh, Though oftentimes we find out or figure that out, you know, way too late in our life. And so bringing that awareness into the present and saying, you know what, it doesn't, forget work, right? Forget work. (laughs) That doesn't have to be the priority that, that moves everything else out of the way. Instead, how can I bring in these other things that are really important to me and make sure that they're part of the way I'm spending my time. Totally. And I think about this all the time because I think our relationships with one another, with our loved ones, with our neighbors, with our communities that we're part of, with even within activities that we do as a group, those are the spaces where we're not replaceable. And I cringe saying this out loud about work, but I'm including myself in it. We are all going to be replaced at work. If our workplace lays us off, if we are no longer coming to work, they are going to put someone else in that position. And I don't say that to devalue work. People, there are a lot of us that feel like our work is really meaningful and we do get a lot of personal satisfaction out of it. And that's not to downplay that at all, but it is to say the world is going to keep turning without us, whether we are working or not. And our relationships are the thing that save us over and over again when our work certainly doesn't, when the systems that are supposed to be there protect us to protect us entirely fail amid all of this chaos, what we've got is each other. And I think you can see that playing out in the workplace. I think unionization is such a great example of that, where it's it's about work, but it's collective. It's how do we be in community with each other in this way? How do we fight for each other in this way? And I think in terms of friendship, that was one of the parts of this book that I loved reporting the most because it truly surprised me. And I would have told you and believed in my heart that my friendships were a backbone of my life. They are how I get through the day. But I wasn't necessarily applying the same ambition or care and intention or whatever synonym we want to throw in there to those relationships. It was a lot of, well, but when things calm down or, oh, I should do that, but I'll do it next week. It was a lot of procrastination because most of us are tending to a lot of fires at once. There's work, there's whatever a familial infrastructure looks like for you with caregiving or parenting or your own health. There's so many different obligations that I think it's really easy for that one to feel like, well, that's a given. That's always going to be there. But the more I listen to talk, listen to people talk about the role that the ambition played in their friendships and the fact that that is an area of life that gets so sidelined behind work, behind marriage or relationships, if you're in one, behind all of these other things. And when they brought it to the forefront, it gave them a lot more imagination to think about how they wanted to move through their communities and how they wanted to show up. And that is definitely something I have tried to be better about practicing since I got to talk to people about the significant impact it had, not just on their lives, but on their sense of self and how it had strengthened those bonds as a result of it. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, because that's really what we're talking about is where are we getting that sense of self, that sense of our worth, that sense of value. And because we live in a society that ties it so, so closely to productivity, we can forget about all the other parts of who we are that are really important, right? That really matter to us and that we would say, oh, that actually matters the most. But if we look at how we're spending our time, it's not reflective in, you know, in that I love how in the book you talk about, you know, there are awards or celebrations for if you get, you know, the job or finish your degree or, you know, complete some other milestone that our society deems is worthy of our ambitions. But there's no celebration for, you know, this, you know, another year of friendship or, you know, another year of of play or finding a new hobby. Um, yet those are the things that really sustain us and that make us feel, you know, alive. Um, and that framing of it really helped me think through even more like how we de-incentivize some of the things that are really at, at its core who we are and that make life kind of worth living. 100%. And I do think that so, so much of it comes down to ideas of self-worth and where we're deriving our value, our meaning, how we make meaning of things. And I think a lot of that really is bound up in each other. I think that one of the most limiting things about a certain kind of ambition is that when we're trying to follow that, when we're trying to cling to that, I actually think it's quite narrow. It tells us that it can only look a certain way. It can only go a certain way. And that we're really only supposed to derive our worth or our meaning or our sense of identity from one thing. Mm -hmm. And I think for most of us, if we were to sit out loud and name off the things that make us who we feel like we are, that we're proud of, that we're excited about, that we enjoy. I think for most of us, even if work or ambition is on that list, it's usually not the only thing. And when we zoom out and realize that we can derive that meaning, that significance, that sense of self from a bunch of different things, including and especially our relationships to each other, I think it can help support self-worth in a society and in structures that are very quick to tell us that we don't have value if we aren't upholding XYZ. And I think anything we can do collectively to help us shift away from that, to know that we have value, that we are worthy just because we're here, I think that that is one of the most important things we can do for each other. Absolutely. That reminder, as you just said, that we're our worth and our value exists simply because we exist. Uh, we don't have to earn it. We don't have to prove it. But I think for some of us, that could be a radical concept to even try to consider like, wait, I'm worthy just for doing nothing, um, right? Oh, especially again, when we've been raised on the gold stars and the Pizza Hut book it, you know, club, like it can seem like, what do you mean? I'm just worthy. I have value. I'm, you know, I can enjoy life if I'm not doing, if I don't have some sort of accolade to prove that I've been productive, you know? And so it can, it can be, I think, a big ask to get people to wrap their minds around, like there's a different way that we all could exist in this world. But I think it's so important for us to even struggle with that idea, right? And to think like, well, okay, maybe I don't even believe this, <laughs> but I could consider that my worth is not just not in my work, right? Or that my worth isn't what I produce or that I'm the best at something. Um, you mentioned in the book about 
how we think about that obsession with kind of like that one domain of being really great at something. And it made me think not just of like the Michael Jordans who very much are like focused on being great in that one area. And they would probably say like, this was my focus, but also thinking through how a lot of the ways we do celebrate folks who had that one just one area where they're really achieving and striving and we forget about the cost of that type of obsession. Yeah, absolutely. I think about this a lot because I don't think that we want to get to a place where we're devaluing people's contributions in that direction too. I think that different parts of our lives might require different things from us and different parts of ambition. There might be people out there who it is to the benefit of themselves or their community that they are really focused on this one thing and making a contribution in one area. And then five or 10 years later, that might look completely different. And I think staying open to the idea that it changes is a really key part of this. But I also think for a lot of us, there is a tremendous amount of self-sacrifice that happens in the name of proving worth, of earning rest, of earning basic resources, of earning our rights just to exist for a lot of people. I see, I think we see that happening in legislation right now. We see it happening in policies that would actually help people stalling right now. I, I, the most outrageous example that infuriates me is actually one that I think happens way back in K-12 education where kids are being forced out of opportunities to participate in school because they have lunch debt. Mm -hmm. How is student lunch debt even a term? How is that something that exists? And then to further that, how are we telling a young person, you don't get to participate Because your parent didn't work hard enough to provide this for you. Your family didn't figure it out to provide this for you. And I know that that's not an example people would think of in terms of the cost of ambition, but I think that's part of it. I think that Mm -hmm. this pattern of expecting people to earn it and force their way through it and do it no matter what and show up to work in school if they're sick, I think it's all bound up in the same big tangled knot of deservedness, of self-worth, of who should be able to access those things, who has access to resources. And I think that there's no question that comes at a cost. It comes at a societal cost for sure, but it also has tremendous impacts on our well-being. I think to use probably a more common example, when we talk about burnout, burnout is a structural crisis that has been dumped on the backs of human beings trying to work their way through it. And I think that when we pour everything into work, when we pour everything into a goal, we have to be really careful where we can, which is of course easier said than done, that we're not emptying ourselves out every single time. Mm -hmm. That there are opportunities to rest where we can, to talk to a friend where we can, that we're also remembering that within all this work and striving, there's a human being at the core of that. And it matters that we protect them. It matters that we protect ourselves. Mm-hmm. And it's so difficult to do when we are really applauded for the times that we don't, right? The times that we separate ourselves from our own humanity. It's always, you know, great job to the folks who worked overtime, who worked over the weekend to get this project finished, or, you know, even just that fear of using our PTO, right? And taking a break. 
or using our PTO to actually do nothing versus using the PTO to catch up on maybe our personal errands or, you know, other family responsibilities. And so it really is baked into our culture and baked into how we even orient ourselves to the world. Um, I can definitely think of other jobs I've had where there was that expectation of who works the hardest, right? Um, Who is always showing up, who says yes to taking on more and more and more and doing less or even doing something, a reasonable amount of work was not an option, was seen as failure of not being a team player. And so it's difficult to navigate, you know, the workplace and the larger structures of society as individuals, right? Um, And that's kind of what keeps us stuck in this trap is not making those community connections and not making the connection that, okay, this is a structural issue um, and I'm not supposed to be able to change it by myself and no amount of individual self-care is going to help me get out of it or help us get out of it. It is important, but it's not everything. And I think it's so important to name that, to name that this is really hard to do, because I totally understand that some people are going to skim this book or listen to this book and think, okay, yeah, great. It sounds good in theory, but that doesn't match my life at all. My work doesn't work like that. My life doesn't work like that. I think that's important to say. And I think that that's also part of the problem. And I think that that's why we have to talk about it. I think it's really easy for any one of us to sit here and say, oh, detach your self-worth from your work. It doesn't work, doesn't matter. It's fine. Don't worry about it. I think that for 99% of us, that hits against reality in a way that feels borderline catastrophic. There are some people who cannot afford to take days off. Mm-hmm. So telling them, take a day off for your mental health, well, that doesn't quite work if that means they don't have the resources to pay their rent. That Those things don't match. They cannot coexist. They don't go together because mm-hmm. them not being able to pay their rent is not going to help mental health. And so I think that that's part of the larger conversation and not to bring everything back to this, but I do think that's where the collectivity aspect is just so important. I think even as simple as talking to each other about the pressures, about how this looks for us, about how it's unfolding in our lives. I think it matters, number one, because it reassures us that we're not the only ones struggling with this. I think that there is a part of this conversation that can almost make you feel ashamed. Like, well, Mm -hmm. I know better than to put all of my worth in my work. I know better than to do some of this, but I don't see a way out of it. And I don't think that helps anyone. I think it's really hard to do. And I think that when we lean on each other, it helps with that. And then I think on the other hand, the structural untangling, we're not going to fix these things by ourselves. Nothing's going to be solved on a more substantial level by us sitting and reconsidering our relationship to ambition alone on our couches, thinking it through. I think it has to go a step further than that. And that's one of the reasons that I felt like when people I spoke to brought up suggestions of policy, things that gave people more resources, I felt like that part of ambition was really critical to name. Because I think there's also this assumption that this is a problem without a solution, when in reality, it seems like there are a lot of solutions that could make this a little bit easier for everybody. Mm -hmm. 
I love that in the book, you talk about the solutions and at different levels, right? So of course, there are things that we can do in our individual lives that might help us kind of cope with, right? All of these stressors, but then there are things we can do collectively in our own communities, wherever we may be. And then there are things that we can think about doing collectively on a societal level as well that might start to shift even the conditions and the structures that we're in. And so I always love when there are tangible action items that we can do. And I think we're also getting glimpses of that, just thinking about all of the different um, union efforts that we've seen, um, also the different strikes that we've seen over the past handful of years. And I love that it's continue, like people are continuing to organize and say like, no, we deserve to have the resources we deserve to have bathroom breaks, right? Like things that are so simple that should be a part of our workplace, but yet people are having to organize to get, or we should have a living wage. Um, And so I think the more that people organize and agitate, then it also gives folks in other industries or fields to say, wait a minute, we could do that too. Maybe it has never been done in this industry, but it doesn't mean it can't be because we are all experiencing, right? These same conditions that make it impossible for us really to live, right? As you mentioned, so much of our our lives and our needs are wrapped up in our work, healthcare, for example. Um, and so we have to, like, we have to do it because capitalism, uh, but we could also be imagining a different society. Like we don't have to just maintain within this system as it is and try to fix it or make it more bearable, we could start to consider, okay, what else might our world look like? And I think that's the biggest ambition. I think that that's the the ambition that captures everything else. I think that is the ambition we can have for each other. In terms of work, we need structural changes that do not force people to be ambitious about something as basic as having their basic needs met. And do not rely on overwork as this driver of both security and self-worth, depending on the job that you've got. We can do that. And I think that one of the most incredible, ambitious things that's happening now is we're seeing it in real time. And I think that that takes and has taken throughout history a tremendous amount of ambition all on its own. I think there's a lot of sacrifice that goes into those changes, a lot of work that goes into those changes. But I think as more people talk about what that looks like for them, whether they are on strike, whether they've unionized their workplace, whether they are advocating for paid leave, all of these different things contribute to a larger whole of making it more possible for us to experience and our idea of what it means to be ambitious, what it means to get to want something on behalf of each other and achieve something that works better for all of us. Mm-hmm. Yes. So Rainsford, I have to ask, you know, you've written this book, you've, you know, taken us through a, a history of ambition and also how ambition shows up in our contemporary society. Um, for you, how would you have defined ambition maybe prior to starting this project? And then how are you thinking about ambition now? This is one of the most tremendous gifts that anything I've ever gotten to work on in my career could have possibly given to me personally. And I feel very lucky about that because as I alluded to earlier, I came to this project when I was in not just a crisis of ambition, but in kind of a crisis of self. I'm chronically ill and my physical health was deteriorating. My mental health was going right along with it. There were a lot of really 
just kind of world rocking factors that were happening in my life at the time that I first felt like I was losing my ambition. And before, I think I would have described my ambition to you as proving it. I had goals and I had dreams, certainly, but I noticed that the older I got, the further I got from I'm pursuing this because it matters to me, because I care so much, because I want the opportunity to try it and more about, I just have to hang on. I have to prove that I'm worth this opportunity. I have to prove that I'm worth being here as a person in the world. I wouldn't have been able to articulate this at the time, but my conception of ambition got quite dark, which is kind of funny to say now because it didn't come always from this place of wanting to chase a dream. It came from trying to chase some sense of self, some sense of security in a world that felt like it was not offering very much. And it came with a tremendous amount of guilt and shame for not doing enough. And I think that over the course of unpacking my own relationship with ambition back to when I was a kid, I think that the incredible conversations I got to have with people for this book, all the credit truly to them. I think that now when I think of ambition and I'm ambitious about contributing I'm ambitious about the fact that I get to keep learning and that that in and of itself is such a thing to treasure that I get to try again the next day. And I think that I I do think I say this in the book, but I think I'm really ambitious for pauses in a way I wasn't before. I'm ambitious to get to places where I can exhale and say, we've learned this much this far we can keep going with that. And that is such a thing to keep striving for, no matter whether it's in my professional life, my personal life, hopefully it's a combination of the two. I think that my ambition feels a lot more sustainable now and much more robust because of that. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. Well, unfortunately, we are at the end of our time together. I could talk about ambition forever because Honestly, it's something I have been working through and revising for myself and thinking about what matters most and and aligning my actions with that versus some societal defined definition of success or ambition. So I absolutely love this book and I love talking with you today. Thanks so much. Thank you for such an amazing conversation. Thank you again to Rainsford Stoffer for being here with us today. Her book is All the Gold Stars, Reimagining Ambition and the Ways We Strive. What I loved about this book is that Rainsford includes a lot of the voices and stories of different people that she interviewed about ambition, as well as researchers who are studying different components of ambition as well. And I'm betting that you will find a story in this book, a person in this book who you identify with in terms of how you're thinking about ambition or how you might want to rethink ambition. So I really enjoyed reading it. I definitely saw myself in the book as I mentioned in our conversation, I, you know, tried to avoid seeing myself in this book and was a little defensive, maybe even had a little bit of attitude about how I saw myself in this book. But I think it is so important, not just for our individual well-being, but also 
for our collective well-being as well. And, you know, I love a book that gives us some solutions, some action items so that we can take what we learn and actually think about, okay, how can I contribute to the community I'm a part of? How can I maybe change a little piece of the world that I'm in or even work towards some change that will impact all of us for the better? So there's a lot in this book, but it is a fun read. And yes, maybe you'll also um, see a little bit of yourself in this book in a way that you're like, wait a minute, that's not me. Stop talking about me like that. Uh, but you have to pick it up. All the gold stars, reimagining ambition and the ways we strive. Well, for your positive note, let me remind you that each and every day you get to decide. Yes, you, you get to decide what type of day it's going to be and how you're going to show up in this world. And over time, it is those daily choices that create your life. So what type of life are you creating? Whatever type of life it is, I hope there's some community care involved in that as well. And I also hope that it involves you coming back here to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR and joining me for another engaging and insightful conversation. Make sure that you're subscribed to Let's Grab Coffee in podcast format or on YouTube so you never miss a conversation. And it's an easy way to share Let's Grab Coffee with a friend. I can't wait to be back with you next week.